145, verses 1 through 9. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you'll turn to page 524. It's about halfway through the book. It's page 524, Psalm 145. Please stand in honor of God's um, reading of God's inerrant and holy word. Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather here this morning, to be able to worship you, to sing songs of praise. We ask now as we sit under the preaching of your word, that as it was said earlier this morning in our worship service, that your word that goes out, that it would accomplish that which you purpose. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Josephine and I took a trip with some friends to Southern California in September. And so one of the things that we enjoy doing when we go to Southern California is to try out some of the boba shops that are in the area. And so we decided to choose one boba shop in particular in Irvine, California. Now, the thing about Southern California is that boba shops are a little bit different. Yes, you have the chain boba shops, but you also have the specialty boba shops. And this particular boba shop named Orobay, O-R-O-B-A-E, serves only oolong milk tea. And so my friend and I, we go to Irvine to this shop, and this shop is so special, you can't even go into the retail front. There is no store for you to order, pick up your drink, sit down, and enjoy it. You have to wait in line outside. They take your order. They give you your beverage. And then you have to find a place to sit outside. Now, I guess only in Southern California can you actually sit outside because it's always cool. It's always sunny. It's always dry. I think those of us who lived here in Houston probably don't understand what that means. But it is a place where you can sit outside and enjoy your beverage. So my friend and I, we get into this line that had already assembled, a long line. We wait, we order our drink, pick up our order, and we sit down at a bench that we find nearby. We sit down, my friend takes a long sip of his boba tea. His eyes brighten. As he swallows his boba, his tapioca, and is able to put it down, he says, this is amazing. I can drink this all week. And every time we went to another boba shop that week, he would say, 
This does not compare to Oro Bay. The taste is different than Oro Bay. Do we have an opportunity to go back to Oro Bay? All he could do that week was sing the praise of this boba tea shop, the praise of this oolong milk tea. Now, I'm sure that many of us understand that desire to praise something. We want to praise someone, some place, or some experience that we've had. And I'm sure you and all understand what I'm saying. For those of us who have young children, we praise the wonders of strollers. Strollers that can maneuver very easily. Strollers that have large storage space underneath you could put your diaper bag into. Strollers that you can collapse very easily. Ones that can provide nice shade for your child. We praise products. Some of us praise films. Some of us say, Oppenheimer was such an amazing film. I didn't just watch it once. I watched it twice. Some of you praise places that you've been to. Hawaii is divine. Clear water, white sand, wonderful food. Hawaii, paradise. We praise also food that we've eaten. This steak at this restaurant is amazing. Not only is it a good quality cut, it is an affordable price. Important to some of us, price. And it just melts in your mouth when you take in that first bite. It is so delicious. And we also say that about sermons as well. That sermon was so amazing. Spirit moving. Convicting. I hope that's said of sermons that are preached here. But we tend to praise good things. We love to speak well of things that we find that are good. Now we have to ask ourselves, if God is the ultimate good, if he is the ultimate best thing, then why do we find ourselves praising him infrequently? If there is no one as compassionate as God, why do we find ourselves not praising him for his compassion? If there is no one as loving as God, why do we not exalt God for his love? If God is just and there is no one like him, why do we not revel in his justice? Now, there are many reasons why we do not praise God. But I think there are two I want us to think about. Reason number one why we don't praise God is because we may not know who God is. We do not know his attributes, his character, his quality. When we think of God, our mind is just blank. What do we even say about who God is? And so what we're hoping is that through this eight-week series that we're beginning today about the attributes of God, that we're able to give you insight into who God is <coughs> so that you might praise him. Now, it's not only a lack of knowing who God is that results in our infrequent praise, but I think there's another reason, a second reason. It's because we're too busy. Busyness, distraction. It prevents us from actually taking time to think about who God is. 
Every time our buzz goes zzz, our mind thinks, what notification did I get? When we wait to pick up our children at school, in that long queue of cars, we take out our phone, check a sports score. Maybe we check a YouTube video, which you should not be doing when you drive. We're distracted. And even when we try to pray, our mind is thinking about all the things that we need to do. The laundry needs to get finished. The diaper needs to be changed. Dinner needs to be prepared. Exams have to be studied for. That our minds are all over the place. And we're hoping that this series, as we talk about the attributes of God, will give you time to meditate, to think about who is God that deserves our praise. You'll not only have an opportunity to meditate in our worship service as you hear it preached, but you also have time in your small groups as you're in sermon-based studies to think about who is God that he deserves our praise. Now, this morning's message, this morning's sermon, will focus specifically on one attribute of God, God's goodness. Why is God good? What makes him good? How is God good? That is what we will explore this morning. This is what we'll meditate on, think about together as a congregation. What makes God good that he deserves our praise? Now, to do this, we'll be turning to the passage that Akil just read for us, Psalm 145. So if you have your Bibles, because I see all of your eyeballs focused on me, which is amazing and awesome, I want you to open your Bibles, whether it be the Pew Bible in front of you, your phone app, and turn to Psalm 145, because we as a church believe in the importance of God's Word, and we want your attention focused there. So Psalm 145, if you have not turned there already. Now, before we go into this psalm, I want to give you some background. And you might be thinking, this is the time to check out when the preacher talks about background or context of a book. But I want you to hear this because it's important that you need to know where Psalm 145 fits into the flow of the Psalter or the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is organized into five books. One, two, three, four, five. All five books have one message. How is God establishing his rule through his king? Books one and two talk about the struggle of God's appointed king to establish his rule. Book three talks about the failure of the Davidic king to establish God's rule on the earth. And then book four talks about a return to God, return to the first five books of the Bible. And then the fifth book anticipates, it looks forward to, God's rule. And Psalm 145 occurs right there in book 5, where we are looking forward to praising, anticipating God's future rule. Now, there's something else in Psalm 145 that you can't see because it's in English. Now, for those of you who are seminary students, this is why you need to study the original languages. You need to study Hebrew, because Psalm 145 is an acrostic psalm. Every doublet begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So let's say I'm going to create an acrostic about God on the spot. The ABCs of God. He's almighty, beautiful, compassionate, 
devoted, eternal. And I would continue to go on and on and on using every single letter in the English alphabet to praise God. Now you may be wondering, why does the Hebrew poet actually use every single letter of the Hebrew alphabet in this psalm? It's because acrostics are used to convey completeness. So when you read Psalm 145, it's actually the A to Z of praise. It is a complete picture of what praise looks like. And there's other features about Psalm 145 that you need to think about, is that Psalm 145 is the very last acrostic psalm. So it's like, pay attention. And not only is it the last acrostic psalm in the Psalter, it is the last Davidic psalm in the Psalter. And David wrote many of the psalms, but we should focus on this one. And the topic is praise. Now, within this psalm, Psalm 145, we're going to see three reasons to praise God for his goodness. Three rationales, three things that explain why we should praise God for being good. So let's look at reason number one. The first reason why we should praise God for his goodness is that we praise God's goodness because he is the great king. God is the great wonderful head of state. He is the one of a kind sovereign crown. He is the eminent, beautiful monarch of our lives. And because he is marvelous as a ruler, we should praise him. That we praise God's goodness because he is the great ruler. Now let's turn our attention, our focus, to David's words. Now David makes a promise here to praise God regularly, often every time he gets a chance. And let's look at verse specifically one and two. It says, a song of praise of David, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Now, as I read those verses, you should have heard something. You should have heard the verbs. Now, if you look at these verses, look down at your Bible, you'll see three verbs that occur in these two verses. Extol, bless, praise. And you're thinking to yourself, why is the Psalter, the poet, so repetitious? Why does David do this, repeat the same idea three different ways? It's because that is a feature of good Hebrew poetry. That Hebrew poets use restatement synonyms for emphasis. Now let's look at these words separately. The first word is extol. To extol God is to put him at a high place, that he is at the top of your recommendation list. And we do this in our lives. Think of my personal love for ice cream, right? There is an ice cream shop that I would put at the top of my list. And for the sake of just a concrete example, my favorite place to go to here in Houston is milk and sugar. That would be on the top of the list. So I would exalt, extol milk and sugar. Now, the second word or verb that is used here is to bless. Now, when you bless someone, it's someone from a higher position giving to someone in a lower position, and you're thinking to yourself, but if God is the highest person there is, how do you bless him? To bless God when God is the object of blessing, it refers to this idea of spreading God's reputation. So think of my love for milk and sugar. To bless milk and sugar, I will recommend to every single person, you must try milk and sugar. 
you must go to this ice cream parlor and try their ice cream. That is to bless milk and sugar. You just have to recommend, spread the name. Okay. Now, the last verb that is used here is this word praise. It's spontaneous. It is it's just an expression of joy that happens within you. You just can't hold it in. So let's say someone messages on our small group group me, hey, I'm going out with my girlfriend to dessert tonight. Where would you recommend us to go? And I would be so quick on the draw and say, milk and sugar. It's just spontaneous. It's within me. I must say milk and sugar. That is praise. That it comes out of you. Now, the other thing that you have to look on look at here in this text is I was saying that David promises to praise God, but to praise him regularly. If you look at these verses, it says two phrases, forever and ever, every day, forever and ever, that this is a frequency, a high frequency, that David pledges to praise God as frequently, as often as possible. It's a regular habit. Now, what does God praise him for? I was saying that David praises God for being his king. Look at verse 1. It says, I will extol you, my God and king. Think about it. David is the king. Why would he praise another king? It's because there is no one like God the king. There is no ruler like God. God. There is no monarch like God. Because even though David is the ruler of Israel, God is the ruler of everything. And why is he the ruler of everything? Because there is no ruler that says, everything that you see, I made it. The trees, those are mine. The seas, those are mine. The rocks, the mountains, they are all mine. I am the king. And if you think about it, God's rule also lasts forever. Kings will rise and fall. The pharaohs who built the pyramids, they're gone. Nebuchadnezzar, who led the Babylonians to conquer a lot of the known world, he's gone. Alexander the Great died. Caesars died. Napoleon died. British monarchs died. Presidents died. No one rules forever, but God does. And David, the king of Israel, acknowledges the true king, the king of creation, and it causes him to praise. Now, not only is God the king, he is the great king, and David praises God's greatness. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The word great in three different forms is repeated. Great, greatly, greatness. Now, to be great means to stand out. And we have a term for that, an acronym. GOAT. Greatest of all time. And we apply it to different athletes. Now, this is going to stir controversy. Please don't talk to me about this after sermon, okay? I'm just giving you examples, okay? So you have, like, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tom Brady, Roger Federer, right? All these athletes might be considered the goat. But there is only one goat in the universe that is truly above all without argument, and that is God. And when we talk about God's greatness, and we invite other people to say, God is great too. 
Because if you notice, David is not just huddling in his room, in his robes, writing, God is great. No, he's inviting everyone to say, look how great God is. And even, and you all do this too, don't look at me, because when you talk about the goat, you're trying to convince other people to agree with you. This earth athlete is the greatest of all time, right? It's an invitation. It is an invitation to praise who God is. And that's what David is trying to express through this psalm. Now, if God is the great king, let's think a little bit more about implications for us. What is the implication for us? First, God created everything that you enjoy. That favorite piece of sushi, umami. God made it. It might be your favorite piece of music. God created it. It could be your favorite place to hike. God made it. Now, for instance, I enjoy a cup of tea every morning. It is amazing that God would create a tree that's leaves could be plucked, dried, roasted, and then shipped to my house with a hint of bergamot, and I have Earl Grey tea leaves that I can enjoy in the morning, and when I add hot water to these leaves, I have a beautiful tea, Earl Grey, black. And if I feel especially luxurious, then I can add steamed oat milk. And I have a London fog. God is so wonderful. He created tea to be enjoyed in so many ways. And if you think about something else you enjoy, it points you to the greatness of God. Now, the second thing you have to think about is that God the great king, he ordains everything that has happened in your life. He authored your story. He directed you through your life. And for those of you who are married, or even those of you who are dating, think about it. Think about how God ordained every single event that led up to you meeting your spouse. That God designed it so that when you met that someone, your heart would go, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. It would flutter. And God causes you to smile every time you get a notification from that someone. You know, God ordained and created those moments. And it could apply to when you receive that admission letter from the college that you want to go to, a positive pregnancy test, a job offer, a promotion, that all these things God directed to happen. Now, you might think, if God ordains everything in my life to occur and happen, then how do you explain the bad situations, the trials, the suffering, the difficulties, the hardships, the just agony in my life? That is a wonderful question, and I want you to ask it. I want you to think about it. This is a church where we want you to think about such things, and we will actually revisit that question in the next point. So we praise God's goodness because he is the great king, reason number one. But reason number two why we praise God is because we praise God because he has done great works. He's done great things. He has accomplished great things task. He does things that are wonderful. He completes great deeds. We praise God's goodness because he has done great works. And David does this. He praises God for his good works. But not only will David praise, but also other generations. That David says that the generations will praise God's work. And we see that. We see that specifically in verse 4 through 7. Now, let me read it for us, and then I'll highlight 
some of the words and phrases I want us to think about. Verse 4, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Now remember what I said. Hebrew poetry uses restatement, rephrasing to emphasize an idea. And if you look at these verses, David emphasizes God's works. Verse 4, your works, your mighty acts. Verse 5, wondrous works. Verse 6, awesome deeds. Now the question then is, what are these deeds? What are these works that are going to be passed down from generation to generation? Now first, the first type of deed that can be passed on are the deeds that happen to Israel as a nation. If you think about it, there's a deed of God delivering Egypt, Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea. That is a national deed that they're supposed to remember. Or they could have remembered when God helped them conquer different cities within the promised land, such as Jericho. That is a deed that the nation would remember. So that's the first type of deed that could be passed on from generation to generation to generation. But there's also a second type of deed, a second type of work that can be remembered. And the second type of work that could be remembered is that which God did personally in your life. Maybe Israel received God's blessing through a bountiful crop that year. Maybe God ended a season of infertility within a family. Maybe a wayward child who went far from the Lord returned to him. And these are stories that happen within the context of family that we pass on from generation to generation to generation. Now, hopefully you've also heard that David doesn't only focus on the good deeds, but he focuses on the passing on of ideas, the passing on of these momentous works that David emphasizes how God will pass down these works to the generations. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another. Word one generation, it occurs as a pronoun in verse 6 and 7. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Now, why is David emphasized the passing on of these deeds? Where does this idea come from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where families within Israel are expected to pass on their understanding of God, what God has done, to the next generation. I mean, think about the Passover meal. When the family gathered together to celebrate Passover, the head of the family would recall over this meal how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Now, as I think about God's work, I want you to think about this with me. There's a really interesting pattern. Because as I thought about God's work, it's interesting that God's greatest work oftentimes is bringing good out of bad situations throughout generations. That God is somehow to use this really bad circumstance and somehow bring good out of it. And this kind of answers the question that we were talking about earlier, that if God ordains all these things to happen, then how do we explain the trials, the sufferings, the difficulties that we go through? How do we praise God even when we go through those agonizing times? So let's think about how this principle applies to Israel's past, that God is able to bring good out of bad situations. Think about the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. It caused them to sell Joseph into slavery. Bad. 
It's always bad if your siblings want to sell you and get rid of you. Bad situation. But God allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery so that he would rise within the rank of the Egyptian government and save his family from famine. Think about another situation. Cyrus allows Israel eventually to return to their homeland after exile. The walls of Jerusalem are rubble. It's a bad situation. If your city doesn't have walls, you're in trouble. But that situation causes Nehemiah to step up and lead the efforts to rebuild the wall. And the record is found in the Old Testament. This is good. And let's even think of our own faith, that it is through a very bad situation that we receive redemption. That God brought good out of the death of an innocent person, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That the religious leaders, Romans authorities, who put him to death which is bad, resulted in something good because his death paid the penalty for our sin and then God raises him from the dead to prove that the power of sin is now broken. That whoever believes in Jesus can have eternal life. Now, if God can bring good out of those situations, then God can also bring good out of our bad situations as well. All right, let me share with you a personal example, a personal story. And some of you may have heard this already. So when we were in Southern California, Josephine and I and my friends, we had a chance to go visit Laguna Beach, and it was hot. So my friends, our goddaughter, they were on the beach. Josephine and I, we were strolling Hudson around Laguna as he was napping. It was hot. I needed something to, something to cool off. So we decided to go to a Starbucks to get a cool drink. I opened the door. And I allow the door to slam. Slam not only on my child's stroller, but then I see my wife's face through the glass saying, what are you doing? Bad situation. Bad circumstance. You never want your wife to look at you that way. But God used that bad situation to prompt me to pray to say, Lord, I recognize that there is unconscious selfishness in me. Selfishness that I do not see. And I need your help to love my family. Fast forward the tape a few weeks. My wife is away in Florida, enjoying some time with some good friends. She's about to come back. I have to go pick her up from the airport. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, she had a long plane ride. She must need a beverage, so let me get her water in her favorite tumbler. Oh, she woke up really early in the morning. I should probably get her a snack. So I took some of the banana bread I cooked or baked that morning and cut her a slice. And so we went to the airport, and she appreciated not only a beverage, but also banana bread. Now, that was good. That God used that bad situation to bring about good in my life. Now, before you all think I'm a saint and that I walk on water, let me share with you a more recent experience. Joe was helping me load Hudson into the car. I was going to back out the car, let Josephine in. As I back out the car, I close the garage on my wife. <laughs> Not good. And so this is a work in progress, but God is using these bad situations to bring about some kind of good in me, right? That I need to pray to be more conscious in how I can be selfless to my family. 
Now, you have to think about this, that this is maybe you're like, well, this is kind of a cute situation for you, Henry. This is kind of like, when it comes to pain level, it's very low, right? But I think even if you're going through a really difficult situation, a sick parent, a chronic illness, unresolved conflict, difficult work situation, and the list can go on. I mean, if I gave you all a list of bad things that have happened to me, you, you can give me a list of 10 things really quick. But let me make a comment about where Psalm 145 is. Psalm 145 happens within a grouping of psalms, okay? And these groupings happen in a structure that we call a chiasm. Now, many of you may be thinking, why is it every time we go to HCC to hear a sermon preach, we hear words we do not understand? The word chiasm, which we've used before, is talking about how the structure of certain texts are in the shape of a Greek letter chi, which resembles our X. Okay. Now, biblical authors use a chiasm to structure their arguments, that the first line, the last line, parallel each other, and they keep on paralleling each other until you get to the center, which is the meat of the argument. So think of a sandwich. I've used this example before. You have bread on top, bread on the bottom layer, but the middle stuff is the important stuff, right? The middle, which is the roast beef, the roast turkey, the pastrami, that is what makes the sandwich a sandwich. You do not call it, give me a wheat sandwich, please, or a sourdough sandwich. You say, I want a roast beef sandwich, a pastrami sandwich. So if you're looking at this grouping of Psalms, Psalm 145 is here. Psalm 137 is here. They are the sandwich. And the focus is Psalm 141. But Psalm 137 parallels Psalm 145. And you're thinking, why is he telling me this? Because if you read Psalm 137, it talks about how Israel laments about its exile in Babylon. And in a lament, they typically have a promise or praise. But Psalm 137 does not have it. There is no praise. There is no promise. And the lack of promise or praise depicts how the exiles cannot find a reason to praise God because they are in this deplorable situation. Away from our home, we lost our children, our sons, our temple. We have nothing. But Psalm 145 is a response to 137 saying, yes, things may suck. Things may look hopeless. But we can still praise God because he is still our good king that our king is in the business of bringing good out of bad situations. And it may not happen in this life, it may not happen in this generation, but for those of us who are Christians, we know that it'll occur when Jesus returns to set things right. So think about this. When things get hopeless, when things get miserable, you have two choices, okay? We can either say this, that God, you're terrible, miserable, no good, hopeless for putting me in this situation. I can't see how you bring good out of this. Therefore, no good can ever come out of this situation. And this leads to further despair, further hopelessness, anger, frustration. It leads you to withdraw from God. Or you can say, God, I do not understand why this is happening right now. I don't understand why I'm going through this breakup. I don't know why this family member is dying. I don't know why I'm experiencing a horrible, terrible, no good week at school. But I know you're good. And you can somehow, because you're a good king, bring goodness out of this situation 
I may not be able to see it. I may not be able to imagine it. Help me to trust you. And if you think about it, when you do that, you are drawing closer to God. And if God is good, it's wonderful to be in the presence of goodness. This is a good thing. All right, so let me move on to the last reason about praising God. Why we should praise God for his goodness. That we praise God's goodness because he keeps covenant faithfulness. He keeps his promises. He cares for his people. He will accomplish his purposes. That we praise God's goodness because he keeps covenant faithfulness. And we see this in David's praise of God as well, that David praises God for keeping covenant. And he uses his covenant name to do it. Look at verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is an exact quotation from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And you're like, well, what, why does that matter? Think about this. So God made a covenant with Abraham that through his children, all the nations will be blessed. Many years later, God delivers Israel out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai. He proclaims that they will be a kingdom of priests to declare his glory among the nations. He gave them a covenant. And what do they do? They break the covenant. They create a golden calf to worship. They break their half of the promise. Now, God would have had every right to destroy them right then and there. But they recognize their sin. They ask for forgiveness. And what does God do? God forgives them. He restores fellowship with them. He renews the covenant. And then Exodus 34, verse 6 happens, that he reveals his covenant name to them after they just broke it. That he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so all these qualities tell us that God is so committed to his people that he grants mercy and grace to give them what they don't deserve if they ask for forgiveness and repent. That God is committed to his people. So what does that mean? It means that even if people fail to keep God's covenant, he'll be faithful to forgive, faithful to restore. And if you fail to recognize your sin, if Israel fails to recognize their sin, then there's going to be discipline. There might be the internal wrestling of guilt. There may be the withholding of rain so your crops will not grow. There may be discipline where God allows foreign forces to oppress Israel for a season. And if they continue to remain hard-hearted, they'll be expelled from the land. But why? All these actions are done to produce repentance, to recognize that they have strayed far from the Lord and that they would return. Now, notice that God extends this covenant to anyone who turns from their sins and turns toward the Lord. Look at verse 9. It says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And we see this even in the Old Testament. It's not just limited to Israel, God's covenant, but you see so many non-Israelites who come to join the covenant community of God. You have Rahab, you have Ruth, you have Naaman, just to list a few. So not only does God keep his covenant promise to Israel, but we recognize that God keeps his covenant promises to us. Now, we didn't experience deliverance from Egypt, but we experienced deliverance from sin. 
to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, the work of Jesus breaks the power of sin over us, but we find ourselves, instead of going towards God, toward ourselves and towards our fleshly desires. And we struggle still with gossip, sexual purity, identity ultimately in Christ. And we sense that the presence of sin is still alive in us. But God's commitment to the covenant of the gospel means that if we recognize our sin, God will forgive us and restore the fellowship, the relationship. That means no sin, no matter how big, small, will ever nullify, cancel the work of Jesus Christ. And even if we continue in this path where we walk far from the Lord, God will continue to woo us, to draw us, to put situations in our lives to get us to recognize the devastation of our sin so that we would turn back to God. God is faithful, and that's why we praise him, because God is good. So why should we praise God's goodness? Three reasons. First, he is our great king. Second, he has done great works. And lastly, he keeps his covenant promises. So praise God, exalt him, bless his name, for he is good. Now, as I was studying this passage, it made me think about a song that we sang a long time ago in college, Blessed Be Your Name. And so it must be a God thing that Wilson actually chose that song for our worship set without me even telling him, because it made me think about that song when I studied this psalm. And let me read to you the verses I was thinking about from that psalm. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, so I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. So may we, as a people of God, yes, even though life is tough, even though things are difficult, even though they are hard, may we learn to praise God's name in whatever situation we find ourselves in, because God is always good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning where we had the opportunity to meditate on your word and upon your goodness. Help us, Lord, to learn how to praise you for your goodness. Allow this quality of who you are continue to be in our mind, in our thoughts, as we go throughout our weeks so that we find ourselves praising you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.